Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. I'm Jim Wittavine, and it's good to be here with you once again for episode 69 of the podcast. And in today's episode, I'm going to be returning to a figure who I've mentioned a number of times previously. He's a very important figure in 20th century, the history of ideas. Uh, his name is Herbert Marcuse. And Herbert Marcuse was one of the most influential members of the Frankfurt School, the School of Critical Theory. And I've spoken about critical theory, and I've spoken about the Frankfurt School in the past. And this time, I wanted to address specifically the issue of tolerance in the mind of Herbert Marcuse. And why am I doing that? Why, why do I want to focus on tolerance? Well, we live in an age in which tolerance is proclaimed as one of the highest possible ideals. We're called to be tolerant, and there's no sin worse than the sin of intolerance. Tolerance becomes the, the defining characteristic of a good society, and Canada as a nation is known for its tolerance. I'm going to speak a little bit at the end about tolerance and, and why tolerance itself is not such a positive thing. But I wanted to address the issue of why is it that in a society that proclaims tolerance as the highest ideal, there is so much intolerance? Why is it that so many voices are silenced? Why is it that so many people are sidelined? So many opinions are declared to be inadmissible. People are excluded from social networks and, and excluded from public discussion or, or pushed off to the side in some way, even though tolerance of all viewpoints is supposed to be the, uh, the ultimate good. Well, how did this come about? How, how is it possible that such a, uh, an, a philosophy that, that doesn't appear to hold together a self-defeating kind of philosophy where there's tolerance for one but not tolerance for another. How did that come about? And yet, within, in our society, still having people saying that tolerance is the best thing possible. And I think for that, we need to go back to an, an essay which was written by Herbert Marcuse, in 1965, and he wrote a follow-up to that essay, a postscript, in 1968. 1968 was, of course, a year of massive student protests throughout the world, and Herbert Marcuse, uh, one of the leaders of the New Left at that time, was, was one of the influential parties behind that protest movement in 1968. And I'm going to be going through this essay, and for those of you who are watching on Rumble, I'm trying to get that title visible on the screen. It's uh, hard, very hard to see. It's A Critique of Pure Tolerance. And there's three essays in this book. One is Beyond Tolerance by Robert Paul Wolfe. The second is Tolerance and the Scientific Outlook by Barrington Moore Jr. And the third is Repressive Tolerance by Herbert Marcuse with a postscript as I said, in from 1968. So it's repressive tolerance that I'm going to be focusing our attention on. And I mentioned before that Herbert Marcuse's writing uh, can be rather opaque. 
It can be a little bit difficult to decipher and a little bit hard to translate it into regular English for uh, normal people like you and I. But uh, I'm going to attempt to do that at the very least, to, to make it understandable what he says here. And, and uh, I'm not going to read the whole, obviously, I'm not going to read the whole essay, but I want to pick out what I think are some salient points or the, the central points and then give some commentary on that as well. So repressive tolerance uh, begins in this way. Marcuse says, this essay examines the idea of tolerance in our advanced industrial society. The conclusion reached is that the realization of the objective of tolerance would call for intolerance toward prevailing policies, attitudes, opinions, and the extension of tolerance to policies, attitudes, and opinions which are outlawed or suppressed. So he's obviously writing from, we need to remember the historical context, he's writing from the context of 1965, uh, being in the United States in 1965, uh, a period that was still, uh, particularly in comparison with uh, with our own period, in the period in which we're living right now, uh, which was characterized by a much more conservative outlook. Uh, of course, that would all change uh, from the mid to the late 60s, but it was already changing already in the 60s. But uh, at the same time, as as a spokesman of the of the left, Marcuse saw it in this way, that the conservative powers that be were in control and that he and his compatriots, uh, his comrades, were kind of outsiders, on the outside looking in. That's how they define themselves. And really, that's, that's how the political left, despite its ascendancy, continues to define itself. So, the, re- the, the, the realization, this is his thesis, the realization of the objective of tolerance would call for intolerance toward prevailing policies, attitudes, opinions. So there's, there's he says we're, we're going, working towards this tolerance, but that means that we must be intolerant towards certain things and certain ideas and attitudes. He says... That what was happening at the time is that tolerance was being extended to policies, conditions, and modes of behavior that should not be tolerated because they are impeding, if not destroying, the chances of creating an existence without fear and misery. And so he's decrying this. He's he's saying that this is a negative. What we see in our society, he says, is a tolerance towards attitudes, thoughts, philosophies, which are not allowing us to achieve our goals. And and it's interesting how he describes those goals, because obviously he's a a utopian thinker. Uh, He wants to work to create an existence without fear and misery. Imagining, hoping against all hope, that such an existence would be possible in this life. So, so not taking into account the reality of existence in a fallen world, existence under the sun, uh, as it says in, in Ecclesiastes, uh, but wanting to create an existence without fear and misery. And if you want to create that kind of world in this world, and you think that that's achievable and you want to work, to work towards that, and that's your goal, that's going to cause no end of problems, as we've seen before. So that's the goal. 
And within society as it existed in the 1960s, Marcuse saw that the, the freedom and tolerance that were being offered to the left or to protesters or to revolutionary thinkers was actually a tool of the oppressors. So he says, the exercise of political rights, such as voting, letter writing to the press, to senators, etc., protest demonstrations with a priori renunciation of counterviolence in a society of total administration serves to strengthen this administration by testifying to the existence of democratic liberties, which in reality have changed their content and lost their effectiveness. In such case, such a case, freedom of opinion, of assembly, of speech, becomes an instrument for absolving servitude. So what he's saying is that those who are in authority offer these crumbs to the populace. And, and I'm not saying that he's entirely wrong here, because I think, I think he does have a point. Uh, offer this, this supposed freedom to the general public. Uh, and in allowing that to happen, allowing protests to happen, allowing people to write letters to their, uh, in our case, to members of parliament, to representatives in government, Allowing that to happen is a way of, of placating people, of providing some kind of hope to them, while in fact that, that freedom, freedom of expression, is only serving the status quo. It's only helping to keep things the way they are. So he says, the tolerance which enlarged the range of, and content of freedom was always partisan intolerant toward the protagonists of the repressive status quo. So, so he argues that in this way, uh, a true tolerance for him will necessarily involve intolerance, as he's already said. Now, I'm going to skip over a section here in the book, uh, or in, in the essay. And uh, he says that uh, tolerance cannot be indiscriminate and equal with respect to the contents of expression, neither in word nor in deed. It cannot protect false words and wrong deeds, which demonstrate that they contradict and counteract the possibilities of liberation. He goes on to say, such indiscriminate tolerance is justified in harmless debates, in conversation, in academic discussion. It is indispensable in the scientific enterprise in private religion, an interesting choice of words here, in private religion, this kind of uh, tolerance must be necessary. Of course, uh, religion must be private. But then I highlighted the next section in my copy of the book. He goes on and says, but society cannot be indiscriminate where the pacification of existence, where freedom and happiness themselves are at stake. Here, Certain things cannot be said. Certain ideas cannot be expressed. Certain policies cannot be proposed. Certain behavior cannot be permitted without making tolerance an instrument for the continuation of servitude. So to, to sum up what he says here, to, to put it slightly more simply, I hope, uh, tolerance cannot be indiscriminate and equal. So we can't tolerate all things in the same way. And that goes 
not just for deeds, not just for actions, but also for words. So false words, he says, and false expressions uh, and wrong deeds contradict, counteract, work against the possibilities of liberation. Of course, liberation is what he is declaring that he and his comrades, his uh, his fellow travelers, are working towards this liberation, according to their definition. So if you are against this liberation, well, then your thoughts, your ideas, expression of your ideas, and actions based on those ideas cannot be tolerated, just to put that simply. Because they are the attitudes of what he would call the right, standing as a representative of, of the left, as he himself says, those, those behaviors cannot be permitted without making tolerance an instrument for the continuation of servitude. So that tolerance becomes a negative thing and works towards and works to, to support the continuation as of society as it exists now. Change, the revolutionary change that he was hoping for and working for, would not happen as long as that tolerance continued. Now, skipping over again, uh, as I've mentioned before, Marcuse can be very wordy and uh, usually uses a a number of long paragraphs where one short one would do. Uh, He says, uh, the ways should uh, should not be blocked on which a subversive majority could develop. So a subversive majority working against the powers that be. And if they are blocked by organized repression and indoctrination, their reopening may require apparently undemocratic means. They would include the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly from groups and movements. What kind of groups and movements should have that toleration, that tolerance removed from them so that they are no longer allowed to speak openly, so that they are no longer allowed to assemble openly. Well, uh, the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly from groups and movements which promote what? Aggressive policies, armament, chauvinism, discrimination on the grounds of race and religion, or which oppose the extension of public services social security, medical care, etc. When you think about it, and when you think about what he's saying here, it's uh, it's very, it, it's, it's actually shocking and kind of frightening what he says here. Because the question is, who makes the decision as to what kind of speech is tolerated and, and what kind isn't? Who, dis, who gets to define what are these aggressive policies? Or what is this chauvinism? Or what is actually this discrimination? Who defines what that discrimination may be? And for those who oppose the extension of public services, Marcuse also says, those people need to have their right to assemble and their right to speak out taken away. So, In Marcuse's mind, if you oppose uh, the growth of public services or the the idea that the tentacles of public services will will reach into every aspect of human life, family life, individual life, church life, if you oppose that, uh, 
If you oppose the growing responsibility being given to the state to take care of individuals, Social Security, to provide medical care for people, if you oppose that, you should not be tolerated. That's that's Marcuse's uh, conclusion that he that he draws. So these are the types of people who should have their should not be tolerated. Now he says, I shall presently discuss the question, and this is the, the question that I've already kind of been asking: Who is to decide on the distinction between liberating and repressive, human and inhuman, the teachings and practices? I have already suggested that this distinction is not a matter of value preference, but of rational criteria. So who decides? Who decides what is acceptable and what's not acceptable? Who decides what leads to liberation and what leads to increased oppression? Who who decides what is to be tolerated and what is not to be tolerated? And that's the question that he says he's going uh, going to address. And on the way to addressing that, He says, the systematic withdrawal of tolerance toward regressive and repressive opinions and movements, obviously as defined by him, could only be envisaged as results of large-scale pressure, which would amount to an upheaval. So basically, he is advocating revolution. But he makes a distinction between revolution and or revolutionary thought and reactionary thought. So revolutionary thought in his mind is good. Reactionary thought is bad. Revolutionary violence is acceptable. Reactionary violence is not acceptable. But again, what's the definition? Who defines what action is revolutionary and what action is reactionary? So I'll read a quote about that. He says, in terms of historical function, there is a difference between revolutionary and reactionary violence, between violence practiced by the oppressed and by the oppressors. In terms of ethics, both forms of violence are inhuman and evil. But since when is history made in accordance with ethical standards? To start applying them at the point where the oppressed rebel against the oppressors the have-nots against the haves is serving the cause of actual violence by weakening the protest against it. So if you listened to the episodes of the podcast on Saul Alinsky, you'll, you'll be reminded of what Saul Alinsky had to say about the have-nots, about ethics in history, about how those ethics are, are shaped and molded depending on who's on the right side and always interpreted uh, by the victor and justified by those who gain ascendancy. Well, he says, since when is history made in, in accordance with ethical standards? They, and we can't apply those ethics, he says, against the oppressed rebels who are rebelling against the oppressors. But once again, who defines who is oppressed and who is the oppressor? And again, Marcuse will address that fact. He said, but he goes on to say that the historical calculus of progress, which is actually the calculus of the prospective reduction of cruelty, misery, suppression, seems to involve the calculated choice between two forms of political violence, that on the part of the legally constituted powers by their legitimate action, 
or by their tacit consent, or by their inability to prevent violence, and that on the part of potentially subversive movements. And he says, with respect to the latter, these potentially subversive movements, that uh, a policy of unequal treatment would protect radicalism on the left against that on the right. And so he wants to extend tolerance to what he calls the left, withdraw that tolerance from the right. Because he's, and so he goes out to, in one of the following pages, goes on to say it very clearly and very straightforward. Liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. As to the scope of this tolerance and intolerance, it would extend to the stage of action as well as of discussion and propaganda of deed as well as of word. So it's not just the actions that will not be tolerated, it's also the propaganda, it's also the promotion of these actions or arguments for these actions which will no longer be tolerated. And he goes back and uses the example of the Second World War in Nazi Germany, and he says, if democratic tolerance had been withdrawn when the future leaders started their campaign, mankind would have had a chance of avoiding Auschwitz and a world war. So true pacification, true peacemaking in his mind, requires the withdrawal of tolerance before the deed at the stage of communication in word, print, and picture. So think about, just think about why the, the social networks, which have, have gained control over mass communication throughout the world, why they are so repressive in so many ways. Why do certain people become excluded persona non grata on Twitter or on Facebook or on YouTube? Why are these channels banned when they, when they speak out against the popular narrative or the controlling narrative? Why does that happen? And why does it seem that only certain voices from one side of the story are excluded? when we're supposed to be so tolerant. Well, what Marcuse says here uh, hits the nail right on the head, and it really explains a lot. True pacification, true peacemaking, requires the withdrawal of tolerance before the deed at the stage of communication in word, print, and picture. So in the information age in which we live, that information must be excluded and must be rejected it must not be put forward in the public square. So withdrawal of tolerance, he says, from regressive movements before they can become active, intolerance even toward thought, opinion, and word, and finally intolerance in the opposite direction, that is toward the self-styled conservatives to the political right, these anti-democratic notions respond to the actual development of the democratic society, which has destroyed the basis for universal tolerance. The conditions under which tolerance can again become a liberating and humanizing force have still to be created. So we cannot have that true tolerance until after the revolution, when everybody is thinking the same way, basically. And he says, 
going on to to speak about well who's going to make these decisions well he does he does say that up until now we've been ruled by up until his time anyways the 1960s uh, we've been ruled by uh, a certain elite group and they haven't done a very good job of it so who's to say that the intellectuals would do any worse of a job of it that's basically what it comes down to so he wants to put this uh, this kind of decision-making power into the hands of the intellectuals. In other words, he wants to put the power into his own hands and into the hands of those who agree with him. So he will decide and his uh, partners will, uh, will, will decide what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and what, is, what can be communicated and what cannot be communicated, what can be promoted and what mu- must not be promoted. So that intellectual class, that that another elite class, the the class of academia, the the public intellectuals, they are the ones who are equipped to make these decisions, and they'll decide what can be said and what cannot be said, what's positive and what's not positive, what will lead to peace and harmony and liberty, and what will just maintain that old repressive status quo. He says, near the conclusion of the essay, he says, I believe that there is a natural right of resistance for oppressed and overpowered minorities to use extra legal means if the legal ones have proved to be inadequate. Law and order are always and everywhere the law and order which protect the established hierarchy. It is nonsensical to invoke the absolute authority of this law and this order against those who suffer from it and struggle against it not for personal advantages and revenge, but for their share of humanity. And so what he says about the oppressed, if the revolutionaries who come from the, the, social, the social sphere of the oppressed, if they start to use violence, that cannot be judged according to the same rules as the the powers that be using violence themselves. He says, if they use violence, they do not start a new chain of violence, but try to break an established one. So their violence is acceptable. Their censorship is acceptable. Their exclusion of certain voices from public discussion is acceptable because they are on the right side which is, in his mind, the left side, of course. In the postscript, written in 1968, he says that tolerance would be restricted with respect to movements of a demonstrably aggressive or destructive character, destructive of the prospects for peace, justice, and freedom for all. Such great-sounding words, such high ideals, peace, justice, and freedom for all. But but as we know, that those kind of Ideal, idealistic expressions can very easily be twisted, and so often are. He goes on to say, such discrimination would also be applied to movements opposing the extension of social legislation to the poor, weak, and disabled. So, so Marcuse wants a world or a society in which no one can speak out against encroaching government power and involvement in the individual, the family, and the church. So, so 
if you speak out against the extension of social legislation to the poor, weak, and disabled, you will be silenced. He says also this. He says, if a choice were between, if the choice were between genuine democracy and dictatorship, democracy would certainly be preferable. But democracy does not prevail. The radical critics of the existing political process are thus readily denounced as advocating an elitism, a dictatorship of intellectuals as an alternative. What we have, in fact, is government, representative government by a non-intellectual minority, oh boy, of politicians, generals, and businessmen. The record, he says, as I mentioned earlier, of this elite is not very promising, and political prerogatives for the intelligentsia may not necessarily be worse for the society as a whole. Talk about faint praise. Well, it may not be worse. It certainly doesn't say that uh, in very uh, resounding terms that it's going to be something uh, positive. And finally, in the end of his postscript, he says, the tolerance which is the life element, the token of a free society, will never be the gift of the powers that be. It can, under the prevailing conditions of tyranny by the majority, only be won in the sustained effort of radical minorities willing to break this tyranny and to work for the emergence of a free and sovereign majority. Minorities intolerant, militantly intolerant, and disobedient to the rules of behavior which tolerate destruction and suppression. So that's one of the means by which we've gotten to where we are through the influence, the very strong influence of men like Herbert Marcuse with his essay, Repressive Tolerance. So why do we see that tolerance being declared as being the ultimate good? Well, first of all, it's very strange in a way because tolerance is, is kind of a negative a negative uh, way of looking at things. Well, I tolerate that. So one of the things that you could tolerate, you could say, well, you, you know, my neighbors, they, they cook some strange foods and I, I tolerate the smell of it. I don't like it, but I tolerate it. Uh, it, has, it has negative connotations in a way. It certainly is not positive. A tolerance being a positive action, embracing something. No, it's, it's, a, it's an allowing of something. So tolerance, we need to really consider that tolerance itself, while proclaimed as being the ultimate good, is not anything in comparison with other virtues. And chief among those is love. We're to love one another. That's what we're called to do. We're not just called to tolerate one another. We're called to love one another. But also, the other thing that I wanted to address just briefly is, is and, and to reiterate this point, is that we wonder, well, why is there such great intolerance toward the Christian faith, for example, in so many places, in so many ways? And why is it that uh, Christians, faithful Christians, who believe what God's word has to say, who believe what Jesus said when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, who believe what Peter said when he said salvation is to be found in no one else, there's no other name under heaven given uh, by which men may be saved. Well, that's, that's the message of, of Christianity, which is an exclusive message and obviously is a message that must be repressed if this version, Marcuse's version of tolerance, 
which is now becoming the dominant version or understanding of tolerance among the world's elites, if that becomes uh, predominant, then obviously Christianity as an enemy toward uh, an enemy of progress, an enemy of this vision of tolerance must be suppressed. And any kind of so-called conservatism must also be repressed. Now, I'm not saying that conservatism is equal to Christianity, but uh, in, in many ways, there are, there are parallels and there, there are areas of crossover. So any, any idea that the political right might have, however that might be defined, it's, it's so often ill-defined, but any idea that uh, conservative thinkers or libertarian thinkers or more uh, less statist thinkers may want to put forward or so-called traditional-minded people might want to put forward, well, that must be repressed. How can we do that in a tolerant society? Well, it makes, what well, doesn't make sense, really, but according to uh, Marcuse's thinking, it makes sense, according to Marcuse's ideology, because that, that dissent in that way from that side must be repressed in order for us, the revolutionaries, to have our way with society as we see happening in the Western world today where that, those ideas and those ideals have become ascendant. So I hope you found this, this discussion a little bit helpful. I know Marcuse isn't always, uh, certainly is not the easiest read, and uh, I hope I've managed to explain it succinctly and in an understandable way and accurately. Uh, that's very important as well, to accurately reflect what it is that Marcuse was, was communicating because his influence has been huge and we shouldn't underestimate it. Even, though, even if you may have uh, never have heard of Marcuse, I, I hadn't heard of Marcuse up until a couple of years ago uh, and, and when I started looking into it. His influence has been immense and that influence is in the halls of, of academia, among public intellectuals, so in the universities where the, the thought leaders are made in politics, in international corporations, in the international organizations, that kind of thinking is really the, the dangerous and incredibly destructive kind of thinking that's governing so much of what's happening in the world today. So that is one of the reasons, one of the means by which we've gotten into the situation in which we find ourselves today. It's important for us to understand that so that we can, we can also understand how to fight against it, so that we can know where people are coming from when they say, well, we're not tolerant towards these things. We're not going to be tolerant towards you. We'll be tolerant towards this. Well, we can, we can see on the, on the surface that that's uh, incoherent, but we also need to understand where that comes from. So I'm go going to stop here for now. And as I mentioned, I hope that uh, this episode and this discussion of, of Herbert Marcuse's repressive tolerance has been helpful for you. If you have found it helpful, please do share it. Share a link to the, uh, the video version on Rumble or the audio version of the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Anchor, wherever it is that podcasts are put out. There's, I know there's thousands of them or maybe tens of thousands of them, but uh, if you found it helpful, please do pass it on. And as always, I'll conclude 
with the words of Daniel 11, verse 32, which speaks about the people who know their God standing firm and taking action. And as always, it's my prayer that this podcast, Dan 1132, will help us in the words of Daniel 11, verse 32, to do just that, to stand firm and to take action.